Okay, again, as I mentioned this morning, we're, we're in the, the, uh, the context is uh, the last uh, meal, Jesus and his disciples. This is, of course, the Passover um, celebration and the institution of what we um, call the Lord's Supper. Um, and there's reclining at table together, and Jesus is, is uh, offering words of comfort and encouragement to them as he is about to depart. And, of course, that, that is why they are troubled, because he's talking about departing, and they don't understand that. And so he's reassuring them that he's not forsaking them. Um, says repeatedly here, I'm going, but I'm, I'm coming. I'll come to you, and I'll also send uh, another, another helper. Uh, well, he reiterates that again here. In fact, in verse 28, um, I'm going to, to the Father... Um, I'm sorry, yeah, beginning of verse 28. I'm going away. You've heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. So that's what he's been saying. I'm going, and, I'm, and I'll come to you. I'll, I'll, I'll come again. And so these things are very confusing to them and troubling to them, and so Jesus is uh, offering comfort and encouragement to them. Verse 25, he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. And then um, in verse 30, um, verse 29, rather, he says, Now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. So he's letting them know that he's, that he's telling them things now, while he's with them, before the things actually take place, so that when they do take place, um, it will, it will uh, uh, increase encourage their faith you know they won't be uh, they won't be distraught by the things that are going on which is the same reason we have uh, much of the revelation we have in the new testament the lord is revealing things to us some things that are still yet to come so that if we're alive in those ages or even now you know we see much trouble in the world we know that jesus predicted it um, said it would be like this until the end and so it, it helps us uh, insofar as understanding so that we're not uh, overly troubled by these things but he says, I'm letting you know these things so that when they do come to pass, you may believe. Verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is one of those places I said this morning is uh, limited to, <coughs> to those who were actually with Him that night. I mean, that's what He's referring to there. Holy Spirit certainly teaches us as well. But um, he's letting them know that after he's gone, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach them, lead them into all truth, and remind them of the things that Jesus has taught them. One of the things that's kind of striking as you read through the Gospels, and, and um, John has mentioned this repeatedly, is that they weren't understanding plain sayings. Or, or sometimes John would point out, you know, that, such and such happened, and it wasn't understood until after the resurrection, and then we knew, and then we knew what he meant. So uh, Jesus is letting them know here, the Holy Spirit's going to um, make these things known to them. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Um, and by the way, that's another reason that they were able to, to, to write the text that we have um, without error because of the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Verse 27. This is essentially where we're picking up tonight. Peace I leave with you. 
my peace I give to you. Now you notice a couple of times, you go back to verse 1, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. He repeats that again in the text that we just read. And uh, the, the word trouble there is the idea of, uh, uh, now this is not what the Greeks meant, but this is what I, it makes me think of, a washing machine. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because it means to agitate. And it's, it's the same word that um, when, when Jesus healed the man by the pool of Bethesda, and he was describing to Jesus the troubling of the water, he used the same word. So it's the idea of the water being agitated or stirred up. That's why it makes me think of a washing machine. So if you kind of think of that in terms of your, your inner being, turmoil, you know, you're stirred up, you're, you're agitated, or a word that we often use, of course, you're anxious. That's, that's the state of the apostles here and the, and the other disciples. They're anxious, they're agitated, stirred up inside because of the things that are taking place that they don't understand because of the way that Jesus is talking, because he's talking about departing, and they're, and they're not comprehending all that. So you think about that, um, they're in that state, and so now again as, as part of his words of comfort and assurance, Jesus says, peace, peace, I leave with you. Peace I leave with you. And this is a, a pregnant term in, um, in Hebrew thought. Uh, of course, uh, the Greek word here is equivalent of the, of the Hebrew word shalom. I mean, it's carrying that idea. And I say that not just because of the definition of the word, but, but because of the, the, uh, the context. In other words, these are Hebrews thinking and talking. So when, when they talk about peace, it's that concept of shalom, which goes further than um, the way we think sometimes. A lot of times when we talk about peace, we think of, of kind of a quietness of mind, which is nice, by the way, if you, you ever get to that point, ever experience that point. It's nice. Enjoy it. You know, we enjoy that while we can because it doesn't seem to last long a lot of times. But a quietness of mind, peace. Or we think in terms of um, calm, like cessation of war. And Scripture uses the word in those ways as well. I, in fact, I think, for example, in Romans, when Paul says we have peace with God, I think what he's meaning there really is cessation of war. Because that's the way he describes us in Romans. We were at war with God. The natural mind is at enmity with God. So there's, between the unbeliever and God, there's war. And Paul says, through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God. So there he is talking about, um, I think, primarily cessation of war. But again, as I said, this term, their concept of peace goes beyond that. The old uh, Hebrew concept of shalom, just to uh, kind of sum it up, is the idea of well-being. So it would basically include all of those things. And the idea of being blessed, prospered, favored by God, shalom. And that's why they would greet each other and, and say goodbye to each other with that word, shalom. And, of course, they still do. The Jews still do. Um, shalom. Because when they do that, when they greet each other or say goodbye to each other, 
Um, it's not just, a, at least it's not supposed to be just an empty saying. They're, they're wishing well-being upon one another. That's the idea there. Paul, um, Paul continues to do that as a, as a Christian. In every one of his epistles, he will say something like, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of shalom. He wants shalom for the church. Well-being. Prosperity. Not in a monetary sense, but, but in, a, in, a, a, in a genuine sense. Peace with God. Um, favor with God. Quietness of mind for the right reasons. Um, because, again, because you're at peace with God. So I think that's what Jesus has in mind here. In other words, the, the world may be turning upside down. Or it may be falling apart all around us. And yet what Jesus is suggesting is, in the midst of that, you can have real shalom, peace. That's what I'm leaving you with. In fact, he says, not as the world gives you peace. In other words, circumstances don't have to be right. Everything doesn't have, you know, as far as what we consider to be right, everything doesn't have to be going our way. His, his peace operates even in the worst of circumstances. So that's what he leaves us. And uh, we'll see later, Lord willing, in the 16th chapter, he says, In the world you have tribulation, trouble, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. So those, those are words there that minister peace from chapter 16, verse 33. So, you're in turmoil now. Your hearts are troubled, agitated. You're stirred up on the inside. And essentially what he's saying is, be at peace. I'm leaving you in peace. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm, I'm leaving you peace. Peace I leave you. I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You know, one of, the, one of the things, and we can identify with this, I think, um, one of the things he's, he's doing all the way through here is, is calling on them to trust Him. Calling on them, we'll see in a moment, to, to rejoice in Him for the right reasons. Calling on them to love Him because they do, but they don't. They love Him, but they don't love Him in the right way. They trust Him, but they don't trust Him in the right way. They rejoice in Him in one sense, but they, but they don't really rejoice in all of the will of God. So they're not really rejoicing in the right way. So that's what He's calling on them to do. And I think, again, part of the promise of the Holy Spirit is He's saying, once you have received the Holy Spirit, once another Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, has come, this is going to be his main function as your helper. He's going, to, um, he's going to testify to you concerning me, Jesus says. And he's going to um, create in you a greater, uh, create in you trust in, in, in me and rejoicing in me for all of the right reasons. And you see that transformation when you get to the book of Acts. Once the Holy Spirit is poured out and, uh, and you, you see a different Peter for example. And it's different with all of the disciples that way. And you see them operating in this kind of peace that he's talking about here uh, rather than 
the kind of agitation, inner turmoil that they're experiencing here. And again, to some degree, um, we, can, we can still identify with that. If, if you, uh, see, how can I describe that? If, you can kinda, if, if, if we can kind of put the, ourselves in their situation for a moment, and you think, about, you think about yourself now as a Christian with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit operating in us, and you put yourselves in their position there without that. You may, we may experience inner turmoil at times now, but you can see, can't you, how it would be worse in that situation. When Jesus did depart, and it looked like to them, the whole world as they knew it was crumbling, and their hopes of the Messianic kingdom were crumbling. And so that's why he's telling them these things up front, to give them some things to think about, so that when all of that begins to play out, they know that he said it was coming to pass, and that it's part of the plan. Verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Now notice that again. If you loved me, as though they don't. If you loved me, and you would have rejoiced. He's implying that their, their emotions right now are not what they should be, they're, because their thinking is not what it should be. I mean, you would have Rejoice. Well, didn't they love him? Yes and no. <laughs> I, think, I think they did. They did love him, but not as much as they should. They did trust him, but not as much as they should. So that's why he says again in verse 1, Believe also in me. Because they weren't trusting him like they should. And because they didn't love him like they should, and because they didn't trust him like they should, they weren't rejoicing at his going, at his departure. With, at this point, for them, it's just all confusion where there should be rejoicing. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So he essentially says two things there. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. What does he mean? Why, why, would, why would they rejoice? He's still leaving, right? So why, what, why would they look at that as, as something favorable? Well, I think for two reasons. Number one, because our redemption has to be accomplished. The atonement has to be made. And so we look back now, that's why we sing songs about amazing grace. <laughs> that's why we, we talk about what God did at the cross, because we look back now and we rejoice that Jesus endured the cross. Right? And in the right frame of mind, they would have been looking ahead at that rejoicing, had they understood. They didn't, of course, understand those things. But that's why he says that. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. In other words, as we talked about last week, 
he says, um, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So I'm going, I'm going to the cross to prepare a dwelling place for you in the Father's house. That's grounds for rejoicing. And if you loved me, Jesus says, like you should, I think is the implication, you would rejoice because I go to the Father. In other words, because I'm accomplishing that. And, and secondarily, because just plainly, as he says here, because I go to the Father. In other words, Jesus is being restored. We're going we're to see this in chapter 17. Jesus is being restored to the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. There's a sense in which he's an alien here. He's in this world, but he's, he's not of it. Paul tells us in Philippians that he was, he was in the form of God. He existed in the form of God. And he took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself, poured himself out, literally emptied himself, Paul says in Philippians 2, taking on the form of a servant. That is, he became a human being. John lays that out for us back in chapter 1. The Word... In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the, the Lord of glory, the eternal Son of God, condescended, emptied Himself, taking on human flesh. In other words, He laid His glory aside for a time to identify with us so that He could make atonement for us. And now, what He's looking at, and this is what the writer of Hebrews means when he says he, en he endured the shame of the cross for the glory that was set before Him. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's thinking about the glory set before Him on the other side of the cross when He re returns to the Father, to the glory that He had with the Father before the world was and he says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. I'm going back where I belong. I'm going to be glorified. And then he says, for the Father is greater than I. Wow, that's a statement, isn't it? That's one you've got to look at and look at and look at. We've been talking a lot as we've been uh, moving through the Gospel of John about the deity of Christ. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't get through the first few verses without, <laughs> without being confronted with the deity of Christ. He's, he's God. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, which is um, there referring to Jesus. The word, the word Logos means Word, but it's referring to Jesus, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, John tells us. That is, he was, the, the idea is face-to-face. -face. He's face-to-face -face in the presence of God. The Word was with God. And then John makes this astounding statement. The Word was God. Or you could say the Word was divine. He's God. And He became flesh and dwelt among us, fulfilling 
um, the name given to him in ages past of Emmanuel, God with us. He's God. He's God in the flesh. So we talked quite a bit about that because John keeps bringing it out over and over again. We've looked at all of the I Am statements, right? Where Jesus takes the very name of God, the proper name of God in the Old Testament, I Am, and uses that phrase repeatedly. And probably the most explicit one, if you recall, is in John eight fifty-eight, where he's in a, um, a dialogue with the Jews there who are opposing him. And he says to them in, in, uh, in John eight fifty six, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And of course, he's, he's contrasting their response to him um, he's contrasting that with, with Abraham's thinking about him. And the reason he's doing that is because they claim to be Abraham's children. And Jesus is saying, if you were Abraham's children, you would, you would love me like Abraham did. You would think of me the way Abraham thinks of me. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And verse 57 says, The Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham, and Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And he uses, again, that phrase that every one of them would have recognized as the proper name of God from Exodus 3 and applies it to himself. Before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he was doing. That's why verse 59 says they, took, they picked up stones to throw at him. So, John has put quite a bit of emphasis on the deity of Christ, the equality of the Father and the Son. And without going back through it, we talked quite a bit about that, for example, in, uh, in chapter 5, Jesus makes several statements there along those lines. Father has power to give life. I, he says the Son of Man also has power to give life and so forth. And then you come across this passage here where Jesus plainly and explicitly says, you should rejoice because I'm going back to the Father for the Father is greater than I. So, so what, is he, what does He mean? And I'm going to give you two things here, and I think, um, I think both are actually correct. But first of all, um, He is here with the disciples speaking about His departure. So, for example, you look back in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. That's where the emphasis is. I'm with you, but I'm, I'm going. I go to prepare a place for you. I go, and I will come to you. Again, I will not leave you as orphans and so forth. But that's the context. I'm, I'm with you, but I'm, I'm going. I'm going to the Father. So I think what he's saying here in verse 28, for the Father is greater than I, he has 
his present state in view, his present state in fleshly form on the earth, condescended form, poured out, emptied of his glory, and the Father's present state, which of course is in glory. For the Father is greater than I. And then I also think that part of what is being um, part of what, what he has in mind here is is what we call the functional subordination in the Godhead. There is true equality um, among the Godhead: God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yet, there are distinctions in persons and distinctions in roles. So the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. You've got true unity in essence, and yet at the same time, diversity in persons and in roles, functional subordination, so that the Father, and Jesus has been clear on this. This is another thing that's been emphasized heavily all the way through this Gospel. I do the Father's Will. He, he repeats it again here in verse 31. I do as the Father has commanded me. And that's an expression of His love. <laughs> I do that so that the world may know that I love the Father. So, and, and back in chapter 5, He says, I don't do anything of my own initiative. What I see the Father do, I do. What the Father commands, that's what I do. So, and, and He often speaks of the Father as the one sending Him. And he sent to do the Father's will, to accomplish the Father's purpose. So on one hand, while Father and Son are equal in essence because both are deity, both are God, similarly with us, and this is not a perfect analogy, but, but similarly with us, human beings bear human children, right? So we're of the same kind. Both humans. We're not one in essence. Like I say, it's not a perfect analogy. But, but we are both humans. Human begets human. And yet there's distinction in persons and distinction in roles. Now, I can't be my father's son. And my father can't... I mean, I can't be my, fa- my father's father. And my father can't be my son. There's no way to reverse those things. So it's, it's similar here. You've got a distinction in role. Unity in essence, one in essence, and yet a distinction in roles. And the Father is the sender. The Father is the one giving the commands. The Son is the one going. The Son is the one obeying. It's functional subordination. And I remember we, uh, we talked about that quite a bit. I'll just throw this out as a little bit of a reminder because I think this is very helpful too, when you, when you talk about um, the roles of men and women uh, in the church and in just life, period, the way that God has designed us, the roles aren't the same, but we are equal. We're, we're equal in dignity. We're equal in worth. God created Adam and Eve, equal in those, in those things, equal in worth, equal in dignity, and yet 
with different roles. She was at, Eve was subordinate to Adam. She was the one that would be bearing the children, for example. It's a different role. Adam was, was uh, given responsibility um, to tend the garden and so forth. So, so I, think, I think it's helpful if you think of those things in light of the, uh, the economy of the Trinity. It kind of helps us understand how you can be equal and yet, and yet um, fulfill different roles. Doesn't take any way, anything away from your uh, from your worth or dignity. So Jesus says the Father is greater than I, probably meaning those things. The Father is in glory. Jesus has laid his glory aside during his earthly ministry. The Father is the is the sender and the one giving the commands. Jesus is the goer and the one doing. The Father is greater than I. And then he says in verse 29, Now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. One last note here, and then if if you want to... interact a little bit we can I think we'll have enough time left um, if you've got any questions from this morning or tonight we can uh, we can talk about those or, or any comments uh, one last note here I will no longer talk much with you and that's again because he's departing for the ruler of this world is coming that's a reference to Satan this is his hour we're told and yet Jesus says He has no claim on me. That's another assertion of sinlessness. The ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. Well, then then why? Why suffer? Why go to the cross? He hasn't hasn't done anything. Satan's coming in in an event that's going to look like he's got the upper hand. And Jesus will suffer at the hands of sinners, endure the hostility of ungodly men, be tortured, beaten, put on the cross, there bear not only the pain of the not only the physical pain of the cross, but there bear the outpouring of the wrath of the Father. Why do all that if if he's not guilty of anything? The ruler of this world, Satan, he's coming, but he has no claim on me. Well, verse 31 says, I do as the Father has commanded. In other words, he's doing this in in obedience to the Father's will. Satan has no claim on me because, number one, I do as the Father's commanded. I always do those things that please the Father. He's never, never once committed sin. And even this, that he's about to accomplish is an act of obedience to the Father's command. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. God, John 3.16 tells us, 
God loved the world in this manner. He gave His only begotten Son. It's, uh, it's an expression in, in, uh, in Romans. Paul says, God demonstrated His love to us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So he says, I, I do this so that the world may know. That is, this is an expression of Jesus' love for the Father as well as an expression of God's love for the world. I do, I do as the Father commands me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So just like he's been calling on them to trust him, obey him, follow him, do his will, calling on us, I should say, because it really applies to us as well, he's calling on us to trust him and obey him and do his will, he's saying this is exactly uh, what I'm doing in relation to the Father, doing his will, accomplishing Accomplishing his purpose. Any comment? We've got a few minutes left. Any comments from, from this morning or, or, uh, or what we just talked about here, this whole passage? Yes, sir. It, it's, it seems to me, there are, I think there are two possibilities here. That's, number, that's one, um, I, and I do think that's correct. Um, because, again, oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, he's, he is fully God. It's not that he's any less God, but he is, momentarily, we could say, you know, 33, 33 and a half years, he is um, in a role of, of, uh, of subordination, uh, unique role of subordination as as he's in the flesh. He's poured out again. I like I like the the terminology Paul uses in Philippians because there he says he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his glory, taking on the form of a servant. So yeah, I think he's thinking in terms of his present state, emptied of glory, uh, in the form of a of a of a servant, meaning meaning that he's in human form, and the Father is still in glory. Well, he didn't have a, a, a body. He, I mean, he, he, took on, he took on flesh, and of course that doesn't just mean, you know, like, like putting on a coat of flesh, but it means be, becoming fully human. And Paul, when uh, John rather says in, in chapter 1, verse 14, he became flesh. <laughs> and the word there is became. He, he actually became a human being. Uh, he became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, he's, he's still a human being. And he's, so now, so now he's fully human and fully divine, except on on the as far as the the bodily side, the human uh, aspect. If we can talk about it that way, um, as you just said, now he's in a glorified state. He's in a glorified body, even bodily. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 At times, of course, I think that was just 
you know, designed that way. Um, well, it, it's it's hard to say. Yeah, yeah. The other times they didn't recognize it. Not at first. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Until he was until he had returned to the Father. Right. That's why I was addressing that. Yeah, because I think that's that's the wrong view. But there are people that say that. Now I do think, and the, the other op, the other uh, thing that I pointed out earlier is that I do think that that there there is again what I was referring to as a functional subordination, which seems to me to be an eternal role. In other words, he was always God the Son, and the Father is always God the Father. That's not a role that they took on in time. It's it's a yes. It was temporary, and 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 again, less just in the sense that he he wasn't enjoying the glory that he had enjoyed from all eternity. Now, that's that's one of the things that a lot of times we think about the uh, the cruel when rightly so we think about the cruelty of the cross and the shame and so forth. But a lot of times we don't think about that even in his day to day living as a human being. <laughs> I mean, what he had come from you know what I mean to, to, to even to even walk somebody by somebody on the street and not have them fall down and worship it's just unthinkable and yet he endured that for yeah that's right blind yeah right Not in the same way. But he he was a part of their. You know, they they wouldn't have been with Jesus at all if it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, but you notice the way he says it here. Sure. Yeah. Um, In, in some sense, yeah, not in the same sense that, that they did afterwards. But but the Holy Spirit is working in their lives, just like He did in, in all of the uh, Old Testament saints. Look at, um, without going into too much detail, look at the way Jesus words it in verse um, 17. You know Him. It's the latter part of verse 17. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Well, well they didn't know that they knew Him. <laughs> and Jesus is telling them, you know Him. In other words, what I'm, what I'm getting from that is He's already working on you. He's already working... Uh, among you and around you, so to speak, and maybe, and, and I think we'd have to say, in, in, in some sense, even in them, but uh, but not in the in the fullness that that you see after the day of Pentecost. Yeah, right. The outpouring of the Spirit had not happened yet. So. That's right. 
Yeah, that's right. Yes, ma'am. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. It's just not time. He is coming. Yeah, yeah. He is coming back in glory. Uh, they were expecting that then. And they were expecting an earthly kingdom, which is not what he came to establish. You know, period. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing. Jesus is talking about the kingdom and what it's like to be kingdom children and so forth. Well, in their mind, they're thinking, um, which, which we're there. We're there. I mean, we're in the kingdom. We're, the kingdom is here now. We're, we're part of it. But in their mind, they're thinking an earthly kingdom, the nation of Israel, you know, and Jesus is going to sit on the throne. So, so they just had a total misconception of the, of the nature of the kingdom. Remember what Jesus uh, told Pilate, you know, my, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. You know, even his disciples thought it was going to be a kingdom of this world, uh, you know, up to that point. So just had a, a total misconception. But again, you see that change after the, after the, out, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And, and the Holy Spirit does what Jesus says he's going to do here. He reminds them of what Jesus taught them, and he leads them into all truth. Then, they, then they've got a grasp on the whole thing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that amazing? He says that about us too. That's right. We're not of the world now. You know. I mean, that's that's a result of the new birth. It's we we don't even as Christians. I mean, we we don't understand uh, really all that it entails. And I mean, it's it's a true transformation. And uh, yeah. John, you know, like on Wednesday nights, we've been going through First John, and he's repeating, repeatedly mentioning, you know, that we're not of the world. They're of the world, the unbelievers and the false teachers and all that. They're of the world. We're not of this world. It's amazing. You think, well, you know, I was born here. <laughs> yeah, but you've been reborn. We've been reborn, and uh, we're not of this world now. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Yeah, he says it all. Yeah, I've heard that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not giving it the same meaning. I, uh, all right. Anybody else? Oh man, it's it's an amazing thing. You, you can go back to that one little verse there. Because I live, you will live also. And like I say, we we don't even comprehend what the fullness of of, of that is, you know, yet. But we will. We will. We're getting there. <laughs> all right. Well, let's. Let's pray and we'll uh, we'll dismiss. Yeah. I wanted to let you know that Richard Walker 
Ooh, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, he had done. Did had he done something recently? Fell off a horse. Mm. Okay. Well, let's let's remember Ricky Walker also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, again thank you for your word. Thank you for these precious truths, these promises, Lord, of preparing a place for us and coming again for us so that we may dwell with you forever. Thank you for the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit now empowering us to live in this world and conforming us to the image of Christ. Father, um, we just thank you. We want to praise you. And Lord, we want to... Uh, we want our, our lives to, to magnify you as we, as we move through this world as long as we're here. So we pray use us to that end. And Lord, we do pray for Ricky Walker uh, asking for, for recovery from this, from this injury. Uh, we do pray that he'll be able to get uh, the, the kind of rest and, and medical attention that, that he needs, uh, that it'll all uh, work uh, for his good and for his help. And Lord... Uh, Ultimately, though, we look to you and we ask that you grant recovery healing. Use it as another testimony of your, of your love for us, your, your grace and your mercy towards us. Again, we thank you and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.